Hello everyone, and welcome to The Good Lawyer Show. I'm your host, Matt Scrivens, and as always, alongside me is Good Lawyer's CEO and co-founder, Brett Colvin. On the show this week is part two of our discussion with former Dean of Law at the University of Alberta, Paul Patton. If you have not heard part one, we highly recommend you take a listen to that first. This week, we get Paul's thoughts on whether the legal profession should be self-regulated and dig into Paul's more recent work in the U.S. to help modernize regulations and encourage the adoption of alternative business models in the legal profession. We found this conversation particularly relevant to what we are trying to do at Good Lawyer and hope you all find this as thought-provoking as we did. Before getting to the conversation, we want to let you know that we at Good Lawyer are offering free 15-minute legal advice sessions to you or your business. Simply visit our website at goodlawyer.ca and book your free legal advice session with one of our fantastic lawyers by entering the promo code GLSHOW. That's G as in good, L as in lawyer, SHOW in all capital letters. Without further ado, let's get to part two of our conversation with Paul Patton. Okay, I got, well, I got one more heavy hitting question that I th- have thought about a lot. And, you know, again, I think this started probably when I was writing that paper back in second year law and my thoughts have evolved. Does law need to be self-regulated? Oh, that was actually the first chapter of my dissertation. It's, it's, mm-hmm. Oh, was it? Well, there was a woman out of Australia, Christine Parker, who's done, she's an academic and has done some wonderful work. I may have the book title wrong, but effectively why regulate lawyers? You know, why should lawyers regulate themselves? And give you another illustration. I did a speech once that got me an invitation to go speak to the Law Society of South Africa about the importance of the independence of the legal profession and self-regulation. I had to defer the invitation because of a conflicting commitment. The individual who extended that invitation from the Law Society of, of South Africa was purged by the government. Wow. And so the independence of the legal profession, in many respects, needs self-regulation to be vital and to continue. But self-regulation is a privilege that should not be abused. And self-regulation does not equate to self-interests of the lawyers. And that's happened to a certain extent. Would you agree with that? Or how how do you feel on that? Well, and just throwing in there too, you know, we've seen it in the UK and Australia and the world did not burn. So I did a piece back in 2008 for the hundredth anniversary of the American Bar Association's codes of legal ethics. And basically was a Canada, US, UK, Australia comparison. And what I said about reforms or the, what some have characterized as a loss of self-regulation, particularly in Australia and the UK, it was where lawyers were seen to abuse the public trust. Right. That government stepped in and forced them to act differently. Mm-hmm. And I think the UK Legal Services Act, we're still seeing the after effects of it. And looking at market liberalization there actually was something out of the Office of Fair Trade, their competition commission that said this market is not working. Um, the competition commission in Canada tried to do something like that and then ended up retracting the report, which kind of got all over. <laughs> But self-regulation is really important in terms of protecting what's important about the independence of advice of lawyers to their clients and actually ensuring that lawyers and the law can be a check and the judiciary can be right. a check on government. And, and that's a really interesting point because 
I, and, and you have more political experience than me, obviously. So uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But uh, if you put a tool in the hands of politicians, I find that they like to use it. And so if, to your point, if we allow the regulation to go to government, there are partisan viewpoints where leverage could be applied and things may happen to the profession that, that lawyers may not be comfortable with. Is that, is that something you are concerned about or not so much? One illustration that I'll use cautiously and carefully right now is the concern mm -hmm. of lawyers in the United States about what's happening with sure. the Department of Justice and very specific interventions to try and, you know, overturn guilty pleas. Right. Um, you had a whole series of lawyers quit out of the DOJ because of political interference in terms of what were supposed to be, you know, independent prosecutorial decisions. Right. There is a very fine line to be drawn in terms of the roles that others play. And you saw that bear out in Canada and I had the, the interesting experience of hosting the former Minister of Justice federally, Jody Raybould Wilson, right at a time yeah. there were all sorts of issues about political interference from her own party in decision-making that she was making as the Attorney General. 90 days later, <laughs> I hosted the new Minister of Justice, David Labetti, for his per first public address as minister. You know, so two ministers yeah. of justice in 90 days in Edmonton, they'll thank me later it, it, you know. <laughs> but it you know again it was a case where i think what you have seen out of both countries totally. and this has happened elsewhere as well is the temptation to interfere in the rule of law you know in, in institutions and individuals who uphold the rule of law and i'll put it this way you expect to see that full force in discussion in the upcoming u.s presidential election i mean you know i get it the ideological reason why the law society or the bar association should be independent of government as a check on government. But I also look at the numbers and the numbers suggest that the legal profession is frankly doing an awful job at providing legal services to the vast majority of people. So it's really hard for me to look at the profession and say, Hey, you guys are a check on government. And you know you have this fundamental obligation to be working for the benefit mm -hmm. of society, yet three quarters or more are left out entirely because we're too expensive. And like that's just, you know, we're too expensive, sorry. There have been more reports from the Canadian Bar Association, from individual law societies, from the American Bar Association, from the International Bar Association and others about access to justice and the inability of individuals to access legal services for years. And yet when you look at the ways in which legal services are being delivered and who's delivering them, the market essentially hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. I think what's dramatically different and what's happening right now that's exciting out of the US is technology is blowing it apart. Totally. And one of the things that I cautioned, and if people have seen me as sort of anti-regulator or anti-law society, that, that's actually not correct. Mm -hmm. I've said you can do a better job. You can do a better job of regulating in the public interest, but you need to be careful because one of the things that I saw starting to happen about a decade ago was that a lot of lawyers who were wanting to do interesting and creative things to make services accessible to more clients were having to get outside the regulated space in order to be able to do it. And so they were saying, you know, and law societies, 
state bars and others have wasted more time, energy, and effort on unauthorized practice of law prosecutions when they could be focusing on how do we actually do a better job of getting legal services to market. But then you get creative and interesting approaches that have been rolled back. Washington State launched limited licensed legal technicians, you know, sort of the equivalent almost of a physician assistant, Mm -hmm. uh, licensed independent paralegals. And they tried it as a pilot. There was very little uptake. There was very little room for uptake. And they've just canceled it. Oh, wow. The dissenting report of the Chief Justice of Washington is a must read in that regard because it lays out exactly why all of that failed. So while I'm really optimistic in terms of some of what's going on in Utah and California and Arizona in particular out of the US, Canadian regulators haven't necessarily been you know, at the forefront that way. And I had actually, I hosted the president of the Law Society of England and Wales after the sort of the big bang explosion of mm-hmm. market Legal reform services, in, the, yeah. in the UK. And yeah, absolutely right. The sky hadn't fallen. It wasn't necessarily working as well as everybody thought it might, but it also wasn't a disaster. And so if you think of your role as a law society, or if governments think of what law societies are doing as regulating an economic market, as well as regulating lawyers, then you have a different lens through which you look at some of those actions and activities and you say, how do we actually solve this mismatch? People can't get legal services. Law graduates can't get jobs or aren't making money. That's where trying to close that gap, separate and apart from more money for legal aid and criminal justice. I mean, criminal justice, family justice are unique and interesting and important categories. But what about your average consumer, your average small business who can't afford to go to a Bay Street or downtown firm? They're scared of the expense. And as you've laid out before, just need some help to get going. And also they don't know what they don't know. Yeah. Make it accessible, allow them to walk into a place that's familiar with a brand that they know and trust. The big, you know, the big shadow over all of the discussions in the United States is the ooh, Walmart law. No, I'm thinking more Costco yeah. or AAA or right. you know, the, the auto associate. I mean, you can walk into the AAA Book your tickets for Disney World. Well, maybe not now. Book your tickets for <laughs> Disney World, although apparently it's reopening. You know, get insurance. In some places, renew your license um, registrations. Why not talk to a lawyer? Yeah. Sometimes but, I just want a McDonald's cheeseburger. You know, I don't want to buy the Ruth Chris steak. Well, and, and or you know where a steakhouse is if you want to go and get one. Yeah. Right. And you're you're not necessarily, you know, you, they might post what the menu is and how much it's going to cost you so you can be prepared for it. Oh, and that was the most perplexing thing for me in law school. Literally after I wrote that paper, because before I wrote that paper, I was a little bit oblivious. And, but then I felt like I was in a different state of mind because I recognized there was this enormous access problem. And at the same time, all of my fellow students, like huge proportion are freaking out because there's not enough law jobs. And I'm just scratching my head being like, how can there be, you know, how can we not be satisfying 75% of the legal needs, but there's too many of us? It just well, didn't make any sense. Well, one of the presentations I did, almost one of my first presentations as dean was to the Alberta Law Conference, which was a combined effort from the Law Society of Alberta and the Canadian Bar Association of Alberta. 
and I was on the hot seat. But I started asking questions of, you know, they were concerned about multidisciplinary practice and alternative business structures and are the accountants coming to take over our business? And I asked them, who does your IT? Who does your advertising? What's your advertising budget? How are you promoting your services? I mean, a lot of what their primary concerns were about was frankly all the business stuff that nobody taught right. in law school. Right. And being able to band together with others or outsource it or figure out a different way to get to marketplace doesn't have to be a threat of being taken over by, you know, PricewaterhouseCoopers Deloitte. It's about making sure that you have, have creative and again, back to your word, innovative solutions that can hopefully help close that gap in a different way. And that's where I think some of the work that you're doing and moving it forward is creative and interesting. Well, and you just said it there, their concern initially was, are the accountants trying to take our business? And that cannot be the underlying reason to maintain the current rules, full stop. Well, one of the things that I said a long time ago, I mean, if you talk to most small businesses throughout Alberta, say in, in I don't know, go to Red Deer, you yeah. know, small to medium sized center, you're a small to medium business, you have to file your tax returns and you need some help you know, setting stuff up to make sure that you're compliant. Who do you go to? You're probably going to talk to a chartered accountant. Mm -hmm. yeah, Just totally. get some business help. They're not seen necessarily as threatening. Uh, we'll leave the accountant jokes aside. They've got a little all sorts of lawyer jokes. <laughs> in the back of that. But in dealing with the accountants, they've made themselves really accessible to that market. So why not at least allow a lawyer to combine services? You know, a, a one-stop shop. Never mind something that would allow you to buy your insurance, get your accounting services and get legal advice when you need it because some, you know, rather than these artificial barriers to try to get that information, there well, are they, other ways so up, up that road. They're doing it. They're already, you know what I mean? They're just like creating these weird corporate structures to do the same thing. Yeah. And, and Paul, just to, just to jump in here, I think this is a great jumping off point because I do want to hear about your work in the U.S., because uh, you were very instrumental in trying to bring forth a lot of what, we're, what we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes here. And, and you'll probably do a better job of uh, explaining it to me. But from what I understand, you've recently been appointed as a member of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Professional Regulation. And then you've also been working with the Arizona Supreme Court to implement uh, its Future of Legal Services Task Force recommendations. Can you just take us through exactly what, what your work has been with that and in, in relation to kind of what we've been discussing, how you see that moving forward and impacting our industry? Good question. <laughs> that was a mouthful, I know. It's <laughs> a long one. Let me, let me divide the two. First off, the ABA Standing Commission, Committee on Professional Regulation. That's a real honor. Uh, I was honored to be nominated for it. The president-elect has appointed me. It, it is a committee that takes a look, traditionally dealt just with discipline issues, but really has morphed into dealing more with what's the future of regulation, what sort of regulatory structures there in addition to discipline. Right. And so there are more policy concerns that are coming forward. And I think as an opportunity to inform the ABA about what the future should be in terms of what regulation looks like. I'm going to have a lot Amazing. to say um, and a lot to learn. The Arizona opportunity came up. Arizona had a legal services task force it initially launched under the auspices, I believe, of the former Chief Justice, Scott Bales, who was a real forward thinker. 
And that's one of the things that's interesting in the U.S. right now. In Utah, uh, to a lesser extent in California, but especially in Arizona, it's been judges who are actually leading the charge oh, to try and institute reform. The Washington State Limited License Legal Technicians were from the judiciary, at least mm -hmm. nudging the profession mm -hmm. forward. So what Arizona came up with was a whole series of fairly radical recommendations. They're getting rid of their advertising restrictions. Amazing. Wow. Um, the committee that I'm on has it actually been trying to make real, how do you allow alternative business structures? And so it's been doing the kind of granular dive into, do you need to change the rules and confidentiality? How do you change it when an accountant who's in your multidisciplinary firm is actually just doing accounting work for accounting clients. Right. Is that subject to privilege? What kind of confidentiality? So for ethics geeks, it's perfect, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Correct me if I'm wrong because, and I'm just spitballing here, but to me, ultimately what we're talking about is how do you access the insurance fund? Uh, far more than that. But, but you know, like, it's like, it's like if, if, if it's getting blended, like where does the lawyer's responsibility end and the non-lawyers begin? Because that insurance piece to me is like really a key underlying reason that lawyers need to be separated is that we have this backup insurance that other professionals don't have. Here's a market solution. Require a mandatory insurance cover. <laughs> yeah, I completely agree. Totally. You know, and again, it's a case at the same time though, one of the things that I think is critically important is that lawyers are still regulated as lawyers and they yeah. have their responsibilities to the profession and to the public Totally, that will not change because of the business structure through which they're operating. And so what this right. committee, and this is a committee of judges, of state bar representatives, of uh, others from the court, and I'm the, the academic along for the ride to try and <laughs> you know, chime in every once in a while. We're really trying to figure out what should the rules look like to implement the policy decisions that were essentially landed on in that task force report. So while Utah and, and California have moved forward with a, a regulatory, California originally had a much more expansive and radically innovative approach that they were taking. They got really chopped back. And so they're trying a kind of pilot project of regulatory sandbox. What Arizona is proposing right now, if the Supreme Court passes it in August, will be quite different. And so, again, you asked me earlier about impact. This is all behind the scenes and sometimes changing one or two lines in a draft rule can make a world of difference. So it's a privilege to be part of that, but it takes a ton of experience to make sure that you actually recognize you know, what's the impact gonna be. And I go so, back to my training as a litigator. Right. I actually started off there and kind of reverse engineered it from there. Well, yeah, and I think, you know, of, of the, all the people that I know, you're extraordinarily well-suited given the breadth and variety of experiences to have, you know, a really fleshed out opinion on where law should go. Because I find too often the answer that I get about like, why is this the way it is? The answer is because it is the way it is. And you, you've seen the application in so many different areas that, you know, I'm happy to hear that uh, you're leading the way in the States and hopefully here in Canada as well. One of the experiences I had as Dean when I first arrived was in the library. There's what they call the law office of the future. I don't know whether you've seen it. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually a mock-up of an historic law office in Alberta, typewriter, quill pens, <laughs> books on the shelf. And so in that respect, at least, you know, it, it's interesting where, 
the law is always backwards looking. How do yes, we learn exactly. the law? We look at precedent. Right. It's what's in the rearview mirror and how do we keep people from making mistakes? We're fundamentally risk averse. Mm -hmm. Where what I've tried to do and what I've had the opportunity to do is to think about, no, how can we be bolder? How can we be more creative? How can we actually right. do things differently? And I've either had the guts or been crazy enough to actually stand up and say it. I have some of the battle scars to prove it, <laughs> uh, both from legal practice and from legal education. But yeah. uh, I'm still standing and having some fun. Well, you're still looking handsome, so that's the important thing. Uh, and a great yeah, beard, awesome. and a great beard. Yeah, I, I, I'm put to shame here. But so maybe you can just quickly touch on that. Is uh, what are the alternative structures, structures, sorry, uh, to the current way of doing things that you see as most hopeful, or that you see the most potential in reforming? the profession? You know, I think it, it will take, I, I have feared that it would actually take government intervening and telling the law yeah, societies or state bars, here's what you're going to do, mm -hmm. uh, which is an imperfect solution. I would much rather see law societies, state bars, regulators focus on instead, what's critically important to fulfill our public service mandate, and then let people be creative within that. You know, how can we actually set the stage and set up the very necessary or most necessary barriers to ensure that the public interest is protected and then let creativity go. You know, so, lawyers are going to be creative and will come right. up. Nobody told us we needed an iPad, right? So, so you know. So within your work with the Arizona Supreme Court, how, how are you doing that? Like what, what are some of the concrete ways in which you're trying to liberalize or move it to the next level? Well, this really goes back to their legal services task force report. I'm just helping them on the rules, but they came up with a number of key policy recommendations. They were, you know, included a recommendation that Arizona firms could include partners who weren't lawyers. Right. <laughs> they would allow lawyers to share fees with non-lawyers. Yeah. That's a big barrier right now. You could have passive investment in law firms. Uh, I don't know whether you've heard of the Australian law firm Slater and Gordon that actually had a yeah. stock market listing. I don't yep. think they're going that far, but in terms of non-lawyer investment, one of the critical issues for a lot of law firms is how do we get capital? How right. can we raise capital? How can we actually do that when we're precluded from doing that? So that's where their task force came up with a number of those policy recommendations, big picture. The working group that I'm working with is trying to actually figure out on a granular level how do you actually turn that into rules and what do you need to be careful about? Well, and, and just on that exact note, you know, you mentioned we were, we were on the task force before and you know, it was productive in the sense that it, it instigated the dialogue, but what kind of teeth do these task force actually have and how do we execute on these great ideas? Cause I've read so many reports, the Canadian futures report, so many great reports with all these great ideas. And then they just die because the benchers or whoever are just like, ah, that's a lot of work. Let me take you back to 1998. No, uh, <laughs> Please do. We, Please do. We, we don't have enough time. I mean, you could really look back to various reports back to 1980 and earlier that have been doing some thinking about this. And there have been different iterations along the way. When I served as a reporter to the Ethics 2020 Commission in the U.S., it was a real opportunity to travel the U.S. to meet lawyers from large and medium and small firms to hear about their concerns, to understand what it was they were facing in day-to-day -day practice, and how might the rules better serve or to create opportunities. The right. backlash was fierce. 
the resistance to change <laughs> has happened, you know, every three years with every one of those new reports. And yet the problem still exists in terms of that mismatch that I talked about earlier on between clients needing legal services and their ability to, to procure them. And right. so in that respect, at least, you know, I could end up with a career of reports that sit on a shelf. I've actually been more focused on getting stuff done, which is Good. maybe why I've, I've tried to uh, branch out into other things as well. Well, in the, in the interest of not alienating you here, we do want to be respectful of your time. So, yeah. right. <laughs> uh, so the final, so the fi- and we are having you on again. I, I, I hope that 100%. Just, yeah, that uh, there's so many things here, but just as a final question here, uh, we always like to ask our guests, are there any resources, whether they be personal or legal or whatever you would like that have helped you along your journey that you think would help others on theirs? Ooh, great question. I mean, there, <laughs> I've been inspired by different things and from different people, different reading, different writing. I mean, in terms of uh, one source, I can't pin it down to things because I think in many respects, because my career has been so varied, sure, I've been influenced by different people doing different things. Jillian Hadfield is, a, you know, got to recommend a Canadian. So Jillian actually returned to the University of Toronto from the University of Southern California wrote a great book called Law for a Flat World. And she actually thinks about law as an economist and on a market. Oh, amazing. uh, On a marketplace basis. Don't agree with everything she has said, but I think her lens of looking through that kind of economic creation of a marketplace is important. She also was actually assisting the Utah task force. And so she's had impact and influence in the U.S. I think it's interesting that Canadians are playing in a market outside of Canada. So if you want one resource, one book to have a look at that way, I'd put Jillian's on the shelf and I'll ask her for a share of the royalties later on. <laughs> yeah. For, we have a massive Joe Rogan-esque audience. So we'll, uh, yeah, we'll see if we can negotiate something on your behalf there. Um, and, and, <laughs> and, you know, my, my stuff, I'm really reluctant to recommend my stuff. I gotta, I've got oh, please do. Out. No, no, no. Because I think after hearing you, people would be interested in hearing what you have to say. So if you have anything of your own, please take yeah. this opportunity. A couple of different ones that I think would provide a bit of an insight. I did a piece for the Fordham Law Review back in 2010, 2011 on a lot of what was going on in the U.S. And it actually, I think, led to my work with the commission. I did a piece back in 2001, 2002 that's an easier read. We called Lawyers, Ethics, and Enron which was actually a dive into lawyer misconduct or appropriate conduct in corporate scandal. Mm -hmm. And I did a third one for the Canadian Bar Review called Corporate Counsel as Corporate Conscience, which was really trying to say, hey, in-house counsel are playing Mm -hmm. a really important role and you regulators aren't actually paying enough attention to kind of pressures they face. So add that to the list or... uh, if insomnia is actually uh, striking you, there's some opportunity to try to remedy it. <laughs> well, and I got to throw one more last final question. This is just in response to an earlier podcast we had with uh, Tony Young, the past president of Law Society. Sure. Um, he, he wouldn't recommend someone going to law school, would you? Absolutely. Um, you need to be careful and you need to think about the reasons why you're doing it. I think where you go and the reason for going is what matters. And in that respect, at least, I never intended to practice as a lawyer. And the legal education I got laid the foundation for a really interesting career that has included practice in different contexts, but also a whole bunch of other stuff. Thinking like a lawyer is a really important way of looking at the world and that discipline 
whatever else ends up happening, I think is still really useful. So uh, while I like Tony and very much respect him, I'm going to disagree with him on this one. Um, and, you know, in defense of Tony, I think he actually probably would agree with you on that exact thing where he was just cautioning, uh, you know, think about it first, because I think a lot of people watch Suits, unfortunately, and then say, hey, I want to be a lawyer. And obviously the reality is a little bit different than what's on TV sometimes. Yeah, I will not, refrain, not Harvey Specter. <laughs> I will refrain from any comment about being <laughs> it. It's also really interesting generationally what people talk about as the TV show that inspired them to go to law school. <laughs> That's fodder for actually, that would actually be a great show. That would, that would. Uh, we can come back and talk about t- lawyers and TVs and movies. Well, let's well, do that one. I think we, yeah, there you go. I think we have about 10 different ways we could take the next one. So uh, no, but this has been, this has been fantastic. So thank you very much for taking this extended time. Thank you. So, but uh, no, that was awesome. We really appreciate your perspective on this. And uh, you know, I think our listeners are going to get a lot out of this. So thank you very much for coming on our show. You're most welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Paul for being on the show. And as you could hear, there are a bunch of different topics we touched on that could be full length episodes in themselves. So we look forward to having him back on the show again soon. The Good Lawyer Show is produced by Brock Pachelik. If you liked what you heard, we would greatly appreciate if you took a quick second to give us a five star rating. And of course, make sure you hit that subscribe button to ensure you're not missing any nuggets of wisdom from our fantastic guests. Until next time, we hope you have a great week.